Now, this is Box to Box with Michael Edgley and Willem van Denderen. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. With Rob Gilbert taking a breather, you're with Willem van Denderen and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news shortly, and as always, we'll be joined by our former ITN journo-turned-pundit, Derek Dyson. Thank you for your patience, waiting a touch longer than usual for this episode. It's been a significant week in the history of Australian football, particularly pertaining to Aussie managers, and we'll spend much of the next hour paying tribute to what's gone before and look excitedly at what is to come. Firstly, the true trailblazer of us. Trailblazer of Australian football management, former Socceroos boss Raleigh Rasik, passed last week aged 87. Rasik led Australia to its first World Cup in 1974 and stayed in contact with his squad, who he referred to as his family, until his final days. It will be our pleasure to welcome one of those family members, Adrian Alston, to the show for the first time. Following that, our modern-day trailblazer, Ange Postacoglu, will become the first Aussie to manage in the English Premier League when Tottenham's new campaign kicks off in August. The BBC's Simon Stone was at the pointy edge of that news as it broke, and he'll return as we anticipate what comes next. And we'll close with a big edition of Women's World Cup Corner. Mr. Michael Edgley is in BKK, ready to fire. Michael, welcome to you. Uh, welcome, Willem. Hello to all the listeners right around Australia, or if you're listening overseas, greetings to you too. Yes, sir. Look, the professional football leagues might have ended, Willem, but the, the world of football is as frenetic as ever. As we record this uh, tonight, later, the Socceroos will be in Beijing playing against Argentina. The Oliroos are in Europe, have been getting fantastic results. The young Matildas have returned after a successful um, qualification for the Asian Cup in Vietnam. The junior Matildas have been Korea. The Joeys are about to start the under-17 Asian Cup in Thailand. Uh, but all of that has been overshadowed by the news that you mentioned, the passing of uh, one of the greatest of all Australian football coaches, Raleigh Rasik. And we will talk to Adrian Noddy Alston about that in great detail in the opening episode. Uh, but hello to you, uh, Derek, who's joining us as well. Now, I know you're a new Australian, but have you been interested to see the response to, one, the passing of Rally Rasik, the first uh, Australian football coach to take the Socceroos to a World Cup, and the, the remarkable news of Ange Postacoglu getting appointed at Tottenham? Yeah, thanks, Ange, and hello, Willem. Yeah, I didn't know much about Rally Rasik, so I'm going to enjoy listening to the show today and hopefully getting a bit more of the feel of the man. But yeah, as I continue my adventure in Australia, I've loved getting into the history and the fabric of, of professional football here and some of those great stories from the past. But of course, the present is the arrival of Ange Postacoglu in the Premier League. It's something that we teased in the show last week. And then, of course, just as we were going to print... Uh, the announcement was made, but the, the, it was very much on the cards. And we've been talking now about maybe the, the change of dynamic in this show, Ed. We, we tend to be very, very Arsenal biased, but suddenly Tottenham is Australia's club and uh, we're probably going to have to be a bit kinder to our friends uh, up the uh, Seven Sisters Road there. Um, but obviously it's a, it's a monumental event for Australian soccer and you know it will be fascinating to see 
how Ange gets on with that Tottenham side. It certainly will. And uh, yes, um, I'm very much a country over club man, so I'm extremely happy about the appointment of Edge Postacoglu at Tottenham. But, um, uh, you know, it will, it will be a new North London derby for me uh, watching it next year, obviously. We'll all want Ange to do very, very well. And we're all, you know, terribly interested to see how he goes. But Willem, you've got some news. Let's, let's get into it. Yeah, we'll pick up with uh, with Rasik. Derek said that he's interested to learn a little bit more. As with many of our great Socceroos and Socceroos managers of the 60s, 70s and 80s, he was born in Yugoslavia, uh, appointed Socceroos boss aged 34 in 1970 and said that, uh, led the side uh, on their near unbeaten 1970 World Tour and then to their first World Cup in 74. Ed, you might be able to fill us in a little bit more about his feats as a manager on the domestic scene uh, in charge of a range of Australian club sides. Appia Leichhardt, he led to the 1987 NSL Championship. Well, he actually um, was the coach of the year in the NSL in 1977 and also in 1987, so the 10 years that spanned. Obviously, he had a huge uh, footprint on the game, not only as the national team coach, but coaching in the NSL. And he, he, was, a, he was a tough coach. Um, he was... Um, most of his ex-players uh, really loved him, but he had a tremendously successful career. He was almost considered the doyen. Um, he was always open for other coaches uh, to seek his guidance and and mentorship. And he he had a thing. He had his fingerprints all over that that era of football. You know, from the early seventies right through to the early nineties. Raleigh Rasik was such a huge personality and a huge leader. Um, of uh, in the football world, in particular coaching. So, yeah, um, I mean, I think that the two awards of the National um, Soccer League Coach of the Year in 1987 um, says it all, you know, 10 apart, he was still doing great work. And there was a great clip that did the rounds on Twitter. I think Sasha Pisani posted it. It was uh, of an Australian sort of football godfather round table, if you like, from a few years back. And it was Rasic talking about, uh, Rasic talking about the... Uh, the 1970 win over Greece, who had been undefeated for a couple of years. He flogged the players, I think, the day before the game. And Ferenc Puskas walked past and said, this guy's cuckoo. Uh, they went on, beat the Greeks, and he sort of said, who's cuckoo now? And then uh, the emotional side to it as well. Uh, he, he mentioned that his Sport Australia induction was the proudest thing uh, that he managed to achieve. And that means a hell of a lot. Uh, I mean, I think of my opa as a uh, as a, a Dutch migrant of, of a similar era and how proud he used to call himself Australian. And uh, it looked like Rasik was very much along those lines as well. So looking forward to speaking to Adrian Alston uh, in just a moment. Before we get there, though, Derek, Man City are UEFA Champions League winners for the first time, edging Inter Milan 1-0 in the final to complete their treble. A first half that probably defines the football term, Keiji, opened up in the second after Rodri scored the opener. But... Uh, that was the winner, Derek, after Romelu Lukaku spurned a chance to level in the dying stages. It's the, the final piece of the puzzle for them. It's been a long time, you know, for all of Pep Guardiola's achievements as a manager. He had not put his hands on this trophy for for some time. And, of course, um, Haaland, he's had a fabulous season. He's not really been scoring the goals recently. So they've had to look at other members of their team, Rodri you probably would have got very good odds on Rod, uh, Rodri as a goal scorer. wouldn't have been up there, but, you know, it's a squad game. Um, look, they're the best team in Europe by far this this season. I don't think anyone can have any any arguments of that. And, of course, the other side of it is three Italian teams in three European finals and three losses, Willem. Uh, you know, the, I don't know how much comfort they will take from uh, having made it all that way. But uh, the three L's probably will sting a little bit for the Italian. 
football fan, certainly for the clubs. To the States, Lionel Messi will join Inter Miami from June, stating it's time to leave Europe and enjoy his day-to-day life. Mm, that sounds like a holiday, Derek. Financial fair play restrictions ruled out his desired return to Barcelona, while he also had a more lucrative offer on the table from Saudi side Al-Hilal. Barcelona were trying their best to make uh, a return for Messi happen, and it just turned out that they just literally couldn't get enough players uh, off the books and out of the club um, to make that happen. So with Barcelona out of the picture and his aff- affinity to anyone else in Europe kind of waning, I think the choice was between the Middle East and, and North America. And as he said, and as you said, if he was in it for the money, he would have gone to Saudi Arabia. I do find it interesting that Phil Neville, my one of my favourite managers, has been booted out just before the arrival of Messi. I'll be interested to see who will come and take the reins at um, Miami and they are in some pretty terrible form and that's probably why Mr Neville got his marching orders but Edge, look, uh, two years at um, PSG, I don't think Messi's star has, has faded too much, he's obviously felt that he's achieved everything he can in European football there was talk of a, a, a sort of a romantic return to South America and his, and his first club but what do you think of this combination of Messi and Miami? Miami, that just sounds like a, a match made in heaven to me. Well, the MLS continues to um, secure big names in football. Um, I can remember when, obviously, um, David Beckham went to LA Galaxy um, all those years ago. They, they do like to get a big superstar into the competition. It just sort of proves how big the US market is for soccer and some of the deep pockets that exist in the game there. But I think it's a good... Uh, it's a good thing for American football league. Lionel, Lionel Messi, I mean, he's uh, obviously not at the top of his game, but he's not too far off. But having held the World Cup trophy last December aloft in Qatar with that cape uh, signified um, uh, how much he was held in in, in esteem by uh, uh, people in Qatar and, and the rest of the world. He did an, an enormous job at the World Cup. So I think he's still very much, um, his currency is well and truly there. But... I'd have to say it was a disappointing couple of years for him at uh, PSG. Socceroos at Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. A reminder that now is the time to register your interest for the January return to Qatar. The Asian Cup is on the line and very much the ambition of Graham Arnold's side. So head to ggatravel.com.au and set the wheels spinning. Edge, you reference the Socceroos. They are in action tonight as you hear this. Uh, Thursday night, late against Argentina in Beijing. Check your local guides. No Moy and no Irvine in midfield who played pretty much every minute of the last trip. Uh, of the last match against Argentina. But that could open the door for Aidan O'Neill to make another start. He's had a big week, four-year deal with 10-time Belgian champions, Standard Liège. Oh, he's definitely a player on the rise. It's a great move for him, a four-year deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, means that he can uh, progress his career in Europe uh, as we expect he will. Yes, look, tonight uh, both teams are missing some frontliners that played in the, um, in the World Cup in Qatar. So it'll be an opportunity for some... Um, emerging players to stake a claim. I mean, from Australia's perspective, Graham Arnold has said that this is an opportunity. It's the beginning of a new four-year cycle. It's the beginning of um, his leading to the Asian Cup in in January and February back in Qatar. So, yeah, there's a lot to look forward to. I'm very interested to see, uh, you know, what happens with the lineup and how they go. Um, Harry Sutar will play a big part. We're not without, uh, um, obviously, uh, the backbone of the team that um, did so well in in Qatar. So I'm expecting a spirited performances from the Socceroos, but just interested to see who Argentina rolls out and uh, how they approach the game as well. 
yeah, Matt Leckie, Jamie McLaren and Aidan Rustic back after missing the Ecuador friendlies. Uncapped players in the squad, Alessandro Circati and Tom Glover. The Oli Roos are through to the semifinals of the Maurice Reveo Trophy. Is that how you say it? Edge results so far in France. Nil all against Qatar. That went to a shootout and they lost. But then a 3-2 win over the Mediterranean Select. Uh, goals to Nishan Volupale and Ryan Teague. And then a 2-0 win over Mexico. The surprise result. Noah Botic and Mali Francois puts us into a semi against Panama at 10.30 Eastern on Friday night. Tony Vidmar working magic. Absolutely. They're great results. Uh, even the draw against Qatar wasn't a uh... Uh, it wasn't um, too bad. We, I, I thought, uh, I watched that game and I thought we had um, uh, we had them on toast for most of the game. We just couldn't score. But um, no, they're doing very, very well, the Oli Roos. And it's important um, development uh, time for these players as they uh, look to go look to get some form ahead of their uh, Olympic qualifiers. Highlight of the week from the Matildas' perspective was Katrina Gori going bang for Vitio in the Swedish Damalsvenskan. Charlotte Grant played a full game alongside her in the... Uh, it was a loss, uh, ultimately. Kyra Cooney-Cross also playing a full match for Hammerby. So, Edge, next week, uh, we're going to have to drill down on probably your Matilda squad. I'd say probably the most learned and across it. So, we'll get your ins and outs around the fringes. Uh, and Matilda McNamara as well, uh, worthy of a mention. The hero for her Danish side, AGF, on the final day. Uh, she found the net, the equaliser, ultimately keeping them out of relegation. Stick around. On the other side, we'll be joined by Socceroos Royalty, Adrian Alston, passing of his gaffer, Rally Rassic. Bup, bup. Get your favourite scents for less at Chemist Warehouse. There's Hugo Boss Orange, 50ml Eau de Toilette for $29.99. Ariana Grande Cloud, 30ml Eau de Parfum for $39.99. That's also not bad. New and exclusive Guy Sebastian Embrace 125ml Eau de Parfum for $49.99. Mont Blanc Legend, 100ml for $59.99. Jimmy Choo Urban here, 100ml for $79.99. And if you like something off the top shelf edge, as I know you do, Victor and Rolf Spice Bump, 50ml for $89.99. Still a cracking deal. You got 100ml of it, pretty good. The Mont Blanc Legend, Chemist Warehouse. The great savings are every single day. Box to box. For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Rally Rasik represented the best of Australia. A Yugoslavian migrant of the 1960s, he committed his life to the country and took its football to the world as manager of the Socceroos' first World Cup appearance in 1974, a feat central to his induction in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame 15 years later. Until his passing last week, he referred to that squad as his family. And it's a pleasure to welcome a proud member of that family, Adrian Alston, to box to box for the first time. Adrian, welcome. Thank you so much. As we speak, it's been almost a week since Rally's passing, and that's the main thread that I can pick up on through interviews and articles. The patriarch of a proud family that has endured well beyond your achievements that you that you managed as young men. So before we ask about the manager, how do you define the man? He was a special man to uh, to take us where he did, the biggest stage in the world, and he got us all together and he he created a group. It took about three three years to uh, to qualify through the stages and stuff and, and the things we had to go through. So, um, yeah, he led us admirably. And, and even to this day, uh, just before he died, he was still ringing the players up and asking how they were. You, you're talking about somebody with an age of 80, 87, 88 approaching and, uh, you know, just a phenomenal person. And he, he was just like family. He tried to uh, He tried to look after us all. And as time has gone on, it might have been lost to a few as to just how young he was when he was uh, Socceroos manager. And you might have just let us in on a little bit of it there with how caring it seemed that he was. But could you please just speak to the dynamic between manager and players when 
uh, yeah, he was not a great deal older than, than some of his charges. Yeah, he was he was the youngest boss at uh, at the World Cup out of them all. But um, the the reviews he got after everybody was speaking about us, it, it, it was just such a shock, especially for West Germany, the eventual winners of the World Cup. Uh, you know, they really didn't expect us, you know, to be able to defend like we did and work hard. And uh, it's always been the Aussie attitude, you know, to do that. You know, it, if you're out there on the field, you've got to give it your all. And uh, people just wrote us off before we even got there. And, and, and then to draw against Chile, who was ra- ranked number six, I think, in the world at that time. So, yeah, phenomenal job. And uh, he was a wonderful leader. He had everything about him. He, he, he's the best coach I've played under in all my years of playing anyway. How have you and your colleagues reacted to the news of his passing? Have you spoken to some of your, your former teammates? And how is, uh, how is that cohort feeling about, uh, about the news? Yeah, absolutely shattered. I've spoken to numerous players and I'm going up to, to Coffs Harbour at the weekend to see my good friend Ottiavonia, who's had a few issues. I went to see Raleigh Rasik a few days before he died up in uh, Liverpool Hospital. And I want to go and see Otty now and, and, uh, because we're all getting older and, you know, we all have issues on us and stuff, but it's absolutely devastating. If he's not remembered like he should be, Rasik, if he's not remembered, you know, like one of the all time greats, then there's something really amiss in Australian football. There certainly is. And I'm sure he will be, um, uh, Adrian. I, I want to, uh, Willem alluded to it before. He was only 34 years of age when he was first named as the Australian national team coach. Did you ever, you know, how did you guys react to such a young person having such an important role? Uh, do you think that uh, his contemporary age um, helped him relate to you as uh, professional footballers? I think um, at first it would have been very, very difficult because he, he came from Victoria and I was sort of lucky because he, he, he took over the club team as well as the national team at the same time, which was St. George Budapest, and we had quite a number of internationals in there. So he, he was working with quite a few of us right from the beginning, but it would have been difficult, you know, with some of the older players, and then there's there's somebody there who's only only a few years older trying to tell you what to do and, and all that kind of stuff. But he... He created his leadership very, very early in time. He let us know exactly where he stood and what he expected from us. And it it was sort of changing from a semi-professional attitude to this complete and utter, there's only one thing left and it's called football and you have to do this. And and, uh, unless you were giving it your all, you weren't involved. He quite often said, it's not just the player that I select, it's the man the man inside, not just a decent player. We can find, you know, plenty of them. He has to be a certain kind of person to be in my team. And that's what he was looking for. And I think he found it. Adrian, he was legendary for um, maintaining relationships with his past players after he'd finished coaching them. I think you alluded to it um, even the weeks before he passed. He was uh, checking on the he was friend to everybody he met, wasn't he? He had time for every interested football fan through to his past players. Can you just give our list a little bit of a window into what he was like maintaining a relationship with him after 
he finished coaching you? Like I said, he he used to ring he used to ring me anyway. I can only say for myself. But when I was speaking to most of the other players, they all said the same thing. He calls on a regular basis, and this has been now. It's it's fifty years ago, in November November thirteenth when we qualified. Fifty years ago, and he's still ringing all the players. Fifty years. Can you just imagine that? Any any other sport or or any any other coach doing that to all of his players, ringing them up after fifty years still, and that and that's not just he's only ringing after all that time. That's him ringing every month without fail just to see if they're all well. Amazing man. Adrian, many can recall, of course, the 1974 World Cup feats, and rightly so, so but not as often referenced uh, is the 1970 World Tour, where so much of that groundwork was put in place, including a famous win against Greece. And then uh, that, that was one of 18 of the most eclectic and varied matches against different opposition, pretty, yeah, pretty much right through Indonesia, through Israel, uh, Iran, the UK. What on earth was that like, having having this young manager taking you on what looks on paper as a bit of a, a goose chase around the world, but ultimately turned out to be uh, so beneficial? That was the first stage of his plan. And he, he took us to different countries because when you're playing in the World Cup qualifying matches, you don't know who you're going to play against and all this from which area. We had to go through four different groups, Australasia, then the Arab countries, Middle East. We had to go to right through Asia in different sections, and we had to play the top teams of each group. Whereas, um, you know, now there's four, there's four qualifiers plus an extra one with the playoff. With in, in our day, there was only one qualifier. So he, he started us on that world tour to, to learn, and we, we were there like 13 weeks, and, and it was like, you know, you're rooming together, and every single thing, breakfast, lunch, dinner, training, there wasn't a minute you were left alone on your own. It, it was the team, the team, the team building the whole time. And by the way, you said we played against Greece. I scored the first goal. So I'm having a bit of a break now. Adrian, you did reference it a little bit earlier on, but the world seemed like a much bigger place in the 1970s and Australia a much further uh, distance from Europe. Could you sum up the esteem that he was held in globally? Because it did seem he wasn't just a, an Aussie icon and an Aussie treasure. And we said that he was uh, a member of the Sport Australia Hall of Fame pretty early on, but he did have some cut through abroad. He certainly did, um, and, and especially after the World Cup. But um, we we were treated so well in Germany when we arrived everywhere. You know, there was surrounded by all these all, all these people and, and and security because a couple of years earlier with the Olympic Games in Munich there was a uh, a lot of hassle and stuff like that. So uh, the security and this, but but, but Rasik was well thought of just to qualify let alone then to go on and play against the world champions and all this carry on and, 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 and show good, uh, good form and everything like that. So he's, um, he stood out. He stood out as a man and he stood out as a coach. And I'll say it again, we should never forget him as one of the all-time best. I, I've always said on many occasions that we should never tr- try and say who was the best coach, somebody now or somebody then. It's a completely different game, different thing. All you can be in your life is the best in your own time. And we certainly were in our time, and he was by a million miles. 
Well, Adrian, you say that there's something wrong if we don't remember Raleigh as one of the very, very best, one of the greats of Australian football. And while people like yourself are on the front foot passing on these stories to the next generation, that most certainly won't be the case. So thank you very much for your time on Box to Box. Thank you very much, guys. All the best to everybody around the football world. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, Adrian. Former Socceroo Adrian Alston there. Stick around on the other side of the break. We're going to pick up with the BBC Simon Stone to talk about the second greatest manager in Australian football history. Willa, willa, willa. Everybody's going to buy white spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Do you love flavour-packed meals? Yes, don't we all? If you do, look no further than the amazing range of herbs and spices of your food from our friend Hoyts. Derek, when was the last time you had a Sunday roast? Oh, I went through a phase very recently where I think we had four roasts in a row, uh, right. chicken and beef. Yeah, we did. Uh, four Sundays in a row. I was just on a roast thing. And uh, yeah, but I want to know a bit more about how I can use spices. How can I spice up my roast, Willem? Well, the good thing about roasts is you can never actually have enough. So why not get in the kitchen this week and make it five from five with a tasty rub by mixing together Hoyt's smoke, cumin and powder. It's up to you. A little olive oil, salt and pepper to season, and the flavors will just explode in your mouth. Kaboom. And remember to refill Hoyt's any of your spices, jars with Hoyt's yeah. value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Australian football supporters have been following the managerial career of Ange Postacoglu for over 25 years, and the pace with which that career has recently accelerated won't have surprised anybody who's observed. He's taken his biggest and boldest step yet in the past 10 days, appointed Tottenham Hotspur manager on a four-year deal, and to discuss that, we welcome back Simon Stone, who's been covering the appointment for the BBC. G'day, Simon. Hi, you okay? Very well, thank you, mate. The Ange cycle is familiar to us as Aussies, and that's just played out really rapidly with Celtic, sort of vociferous doubt to utter devotion within just a couple of years. And as the jungle drums started to beat around the links with Spurs, we saw that cycle sort of kick into action. There was the uh, uh, a little... Uh, online graphics say no to Ange, we deserve better from Spurs fans. But it seems that they might have softened a touch before a ball's even been kicked. Is that, is that fair? How would you surmise how it's been received? Well, they don't have any option to start with. I think, you know, these the appointment's been made now, so they have to uh, accept him and either get behind him or otherwise. And I think that the problem with Tottenham is that they're searching a little bit for an identity. There's discord between the fans and the ownership. There's distrust there as well. And Ange has got to come into that and deal with it. But he will be judged like any other manager will be judged on results. And quite quite brutally, results at Tottenham have not Certainly this season have not been good enough. There's been a lot of money spent, not really a lot to show for it. We've had, since Pochettino left, we've had Jose Mourinho and uh, Antonio Conte, combustible, well-known, high-profile, not afraid, not afraid of, of upsetting, the, upsetting the boat, or rocking the boat is a, a better phrase, but Equally, in the middle of that, we've had Nuno Espirito Santo, who did a really good job at at Wolves, um, started off really well at Tottenham, but then it all unravelled and wasn't given a lot of time to to co- correct the the issues there. Now that where we are now with Ange is 
probably he falls more into the into the Nuno category in that sense. So how much time will he be given by the fans and their then by the board if things don't go well? But there are a lot of a lot of positives at Tottenham. It's just that you have to dig a bit to find them at the moment, and that is what he is walking into. Whenever Tottenham comes up, the name Daniel Levy usually follows. We know he can be, or we hear that he's fiscally tight, a bit of a bit of a meddler, and certainly the the common denominator through those failed managers that you just listed off. We want so badly to believe that our man is going to be different. Is there anything that you can say to soothe us, or is the Levy factor a, a genuine impost? Well, I'd, I'd say that the 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 kind of view of Levy is slightly unfair in that certainly um, he has created the modern Tottenham Hotspur, which is a club who are annoyed because they've not qualified for Europe. Well, not qualifying for Europe pre-Levy was fairly common occurrence, really. Um They've been in the Champions League. They got used to being in the Champions League. That was a, a, a bit unthinkable before Levy came in. It's, it's almost become a bit of a parody now, but they have this magnificent new stadium. They have this superb training ground, almost the, the best training ground uh, in the Premier League. The investment has been made. It's just that they've not been able to get the recruitment right. And as I say, there have been decisions made that almost defy belief, really. So Pochettino goes. Um, he was unhappy the season after uh, Tottenham reached Champions League final with the investment into the club. But then the chairman is allowed to invest what he thinks is the right amount of money for the football club. That is the same for any chairman of a football club. But then... He brought in Jose Mourinho. We know everything about Jose Mourinho. We know he causes problems behind the scenes, but we know he wins trophies. They sacked him in the week of a, a final because he was causing problems behind the scenes. That that didn't seem to make any sense when we had a really protracted managerial search. Um, they had uh, Fabio Paratici um, as a sporting director, uh, from Juventus, the, the managerial search didn't go very well. They ended up with Nuno, then they didn't give him a lot of time, albeit amid a lot of fan discontent. Then they got rid of him, then they brought Conte in. It's just, then they get rid of him again because he's agitating behind the scenes again. It just feels as though there are a lot of decisions that have been made that have not been great decisions. And you have to almost step aside from those decisions and wonder whether Ange coming in is another bad decision or whether it's a really good decision. And and as I say, only only time will tell, but there are issues in terms of the squad, in terms of players who are leaving and who's going to be recruited in their place. There's issues over Harry Kane and any manager would want Harry Kane in their squad, but that well, almost certainly will not be in Ange's kind of remit to decide whether whether Kane stays or goes. So there are there are issues behind the scenes to be dealt with. There is no doubt about that. And unless those issues are dealt with, it will be very difficult for any manager to succeed. And as I pointed out, I, I think there is uncertainty about Ange. It's for him to deliver results. 
an easier way of delivering results if you had the right squad and the right um, the right environment behind the scenes to be able to deliver them. The trick that he pulled off in, at Celtic, even on you know low, much lower budgets, was he, he used his contacts book, particularly in J- Japan, and brought brought across two or three fabulous players who you know made Celtic extremely competitive in in Scotland. Some of the early in ins gossip for for Spurs is that he may well be going looking to raid Celtic. Made has been mentioned, Kyogo, etc. Is that a trick that you think Ange can play again with with that group of uh, players? Um or is it a case of, you know, would you be saying, look, they might be good in Scotland, but Tottenham's aspirations are a little bit higher than that and you need to, you know, elevate your transfer targets. I've got to contradict myself a little bit now because, because with players, it's slightly different. And there is not all players, certainly from uh, from Japan or Korea, have done particularly well in England. But there are examples of players doing well in England. So when you look at Son, for instance, that is, a, that is a, an absolute... Uh, example of a player from that part of the world making a massive impact in the Premier League, and I think there is an element of, well, there is there is a there is a pathway there. There is examples of this working, so we'll go with him on that. What we don't have is an example of a manager coming from a league and doing well, and that that's the that's the difficulty. So. The, the players I don't see as being as big of a problem. I mean, Virgil van Dijk, obviously, is a prime example of someone who's come from Celtic, obviously not straight to Liverpool, but come via Southampton. And he, he turned out to be one of the best players uh, in the Premier League when Liverpool were really, really at their peak. So I don't see that as being as big an issue as the management side of it. Clearly, like everybody else, the players have got to do well, but there is almost a, an element of, you know, players like Mitoma. We, we, we know about Mitoma and Brighton and what a fabulous, uh, fabulous time of it he had last season. So I, I think there are examples there for that not to be a problem. I think the problem is for the manager. And, you know, that is, as I say, that is a contradictory position, but that is the reality, I think. Simon, magnificent to uh, to tap your insight on the ground over there, sensing at times a little bit of the, uh, maybe the trepidation and the unease that Ange has made a career uh, of, of of overcoming and discounting and succeeding beyond. So thank you very much for your time and look forward to uh, chatting again as this uh, unfolds. We can't wait to uh, to watch him over here. So hopefully uh, he, can, uh, he can bring that level of enthusiasm to Spurs. No worries. And I'd just like to point out that it's, Warm and sunny in Manchester in the yes. UK today. It doesn't always rain. It's not always dark. It's beautiful today. Nice. No, Ash is just around the corner. Derek and I are particularly excited for that, Simon. So uh, all the best and we'll, uh, we'll chat down See the track. See you later. BBC's Simon Stone there. Stick around on the other side of the break. Bumper, Women's World Cup corner. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back. Great to chat to Simon Stone of the BBC there and Postacoglu. How good. To Women's World Cup corner, Michael, 
Uh, Caitlin Ford and Steph Catley both re-signed at Arsenal. Crucial Matildas and crucial at Arsenal when fit, but they have had their injury battles. So this is a, a really uh, positive confirmation that the club still see them uh, as a big part of the future going forward. Absolutely. That's fantastic news for those two players. And I'd expect they'd be increasing contract values. So um, some of our Matildas, um, uh, you know, their future has been... Uh, certified and uh, they're in a good place to go into the World Cup and let themselves loose. Two very important plays expecting Caitlin and Steph to make uh, a huge contribution during the Women's World Cup matches. Um, don't forget the Matildas play France uh, in their lead-up. Um, tickets still available for that. So if you're in Melbourne and you haven't got a ticket, go and get one. Now, you've bombarded my email with all sorts of tidbits from FIFA land this week. Well, Firstly... It's all happening in the World Cup world, so there's some interesting stuff from FIFA this week. As it should be a month out from the big uh, the big show. They've announced the new financial distribution model for the tournament, which has earned appro- approval from FIFA Pro. Under the model, all participating member associations will receive record-breaking distributions, as will every individual. Players whose sides don't progress from the group stage, so the, basically the minimum participant, uh, will pocket 30000 US. The winners... Will take home 270,000 US a piece, while their association just under 4.3 million. That takes FIFA's total investment in the tournament. Uh, well, it's expected to exceed 500 million. So, edge wise, is significant. And what did it look like beforehand? Well, it's a major um, increase, almost double than what it was uh, back in uh, in France. So, it's a significant development, no doubt about it. Um, the, the spotlight now is on some federations who might not um, look after their players as well as uh, some of the headline federations. So the spotlight is to make sure that those players from lesser federations, uh, Haiti, for example, uh, Nigeria, for example, that the money goes through to those players. It's a very significant deal that FIFA's done with FIFA Pro. So, yeah, look, um, again, it's just another step. You know, it's not equal pay, but it's another step in the right direction. And uh, some of these athletes uh, are now able to really make a good living out of their football and um, yeah, and also provide an incentive for teams to get through to the knockout phases because you, the longer you go in the tournament, the more money you make. Our weekly ticket update, FIFA have said uh, that they are past 1 million for the event. I've got mine. Derek, I know you and your daughter have yours. Edge will be running around in full World Cup mode as he does. Robin Alexander will be there. Damo, I'm sure, will be cracking out the Azuri kit from the back of the uh, from the back of the closet, first time since the 2021 Euros on Ligon Street. Uh, we are past 1,000, or rather 1 million uh, ticket sales. This goes past what was sold for France's 2019 edition a month from kickout. So all positive on that front. Derek FIFA have also announced AB InBev as the official beer sponsor of the Women's World Cup and the 2026 Men's Edition. Uh, I will present Edge's comment to you. The world's worst beer, Budweiser, continues to terrorise fans at World Cups. Budweiser is the shocking beer then served in a plastic, plastic cup in a stadium. It's going to be even worse. I think I'll... Uh... Probably to stick to the cokes. What's uh, we should actually investigate how much a uh, a Budweiser will cost in the Australian stadiums. I mean, Australian stadiums are renowned for ripping off uh, the fans in a big way. So imagine if you've got to pay about twenty bucks for a Budweiser. <laughs> I'm just not doing it. I mean, I don't I don't like drinking beer at the soccer because I like to watch the game. But if I did like drinking beer, I'd be pretty unhappy about drinking Budweiser at the Women's World Cup. It's a shocking beer. Had there been beer in Qatar, I would never have tried the Karak Tea Edge. It was like a hot, sweet chai. It was really the only alternative to a uh, to a Coca-Cola. I went through a fair few of those. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, we had those a couple of times. It was not the best thing, but 
they do like it in that neck in the nose neck of the woods but uh, not my cup of tea thank you ed have a good week go socceroos yes go socceroos we'll be tuning in shortly Derek, and to you my friend thank you very much chance Please subscribe to Box to Box Stoppage Time and Box to Box Offside wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And please do join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.